All right, you guys know the joke by now, so I suppose it's time for a new one. Um, welcome back to another episode of Weibo.tv. Today on the show, we've got Zara Norbach. Um, we also will feature a musical performance by Thicky Thicky Chicky Chicky, a pop funk duo from El Paso, Texas. All right, let's uh, let's hop on over to Happy Harriman, New York, and visit our host B.J. Mendelson. Uh, but thank you, Zara, so much for joining me today. I, I really appreciate it. Hello, hello. You had uh, so for people that, that might be watching the live stream, I usually will send questions in advance, and some of your answers are just tremendous. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to change the order, and I'm going to actually ask you the last question first. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I thought that I thought that was really spectacular, and I would love I'd love for people to to know about that. So, is there anything that I haven't asked you yet, even though we just started, uh, <laughs> that you would love to tell us about, or that you would love to talk about that you never get to talk about? Yes. Okay. So I'm working on this artist um, safety, resilience, and skill development report for the Opportunity Agenda as part of my Innovations Fellowship. And um, I'm putting together the publishable report. And one of the things that I found was critical to artist safety and our resilience is building out organic, reliable infrastructures that we can use to to meet within, but that also provides us with some kind of language to talk about our work in the arts. No, this is so... The, the concept of like the support infrastructure is a thing I've been thinking about for about a year now. Mm. Um, Cause I've gone on this whole project of like f- giving financial advice to creatives um, yes. is this thing because it just doesn't really exist out there. So what I'm curious, like what brought you to that point of, I want to build, I want to build something that's going to be helpful to my fellow creators. So first I was trying to not quit stand up comedy. Right, sure. <laughs> I was trying to stay in the game and I got this fellowship um, and it came following the pop culture collab fellowship that I received to report on um, comedy pipelines and kind of like how we arrive at funny, you know, and how we sort of globally think about funny and especially in America and especially in pop culture. And one of the things that I felt as an artist was that we write about these things and we report on them and we may work within them and create portfolio work. And then it's like, you have to start from ground zero again with like double the expectation. (laughs) And you've got to make a whole new case for funding, a whole new case for collaborators. And I thought this really depletes the talent pool of artists. Um, and it, this dramatically limits the kinds of voices. Certainly, we're not going to hear from as many of the global majority, aka marginalized voices, um, in the in artist scenes, and and even more so with the economy hit, as you well know. Um, and so then I thought, you know, I really want to work on artist safety and all aspects of what that means. So I started out by thinking about digital security, but then everyone I talked to was like, well, that's something for the FBI. You know, like it's either you're fine and then your home address and your family's home address and all your documents are online and you're not fine and you're almost dead. And then somebody will help you, you know? (laughs) 
Yeah. Like what? And then right. as I started sort of like note swapping with other artists, I noticed, dang, folks are tired. It was 2020. Um, I was in two different sort of small collectives considering exit strategies. People were exhausted and no one was really up for note swapping. Like it helped that I had the fellowship. And the only reason why I felt like I got their time as artists who had experience doxing, death threats, you know, threats to their safety and security um, was because they saw my fellowship as like some form of infrastructural support for change. Interesting. And, um, you know, meanwhile, the philanthropists I was talking to were like, artists should organize. And I was like, yeah, I don't think that's, <laughs> that's not the end all be all folks. <laughs> you know, there's like, more to it than that, right? Like there's, you know, being organized <laughs> is like step one. Then there's all these other things. Yeah. Well, and before we even got started, I found none of us had a sort of vernacular that we could agree on that we could use to organize anything, you know, and the conversation around the arts was a lot of like, either you have it or you don't, either you're talented or you're not, or, you know, and it like, there was so much in our language and in our infrastructural development and folks' expectations in arts organization that really was taking so much for granted. And one of the conclusions I came to was that the most depleting thing for artists right now is self-driven resource management. And, you know, like I saw on one of your episodes, you talking about what a gift it is that like Calendly provides you with such a phenomenal yes. infrastructural base. And it it's little things like that, right? Like these small um, potholes get in the way of our art, artistic development. And then there are the trenches to boot. Um, and certainly in the United States, you know, <laughs> to be anything, you already have to be kind of a lawyer, kind of a healthcare public safety advocate. <laughs> you know, you got to do your own taxes, kind of be a tax expert. Like we can't afford to rely on the specialists that we need already. Right. So then for artists, um, I found that a lot of the sort of attitude around the arts was like, we're providing a service that is a luxury anyway. Hey, it's me, God. I know it's been a while and I haven't been the best dad, especially this century. Well, I was going through some shit and you know what? I'm not going to talk about it. All you need to know is that I'm doing commercials now. I've got bills to pay, too. Do you have any idea how much I just lost on crypto? A lot. A lot. And so now God needs your money. Like, for real this time. Not like all those other times every Sunday. You know who else needs your money? B.J. Mendelssohn. So give them $5 by visiting buymeacoffee.com slash BJ Mendelson. That website again is buymeacoffee.com slash BJ Mendelson. Buymeacoffee.com slash BJ Mendelson. 
And if you don't give BJ your money, you and I are gonna have problems. Big ones. Commercials suck. And hopefully one day we won't need them. But until that day comes, we have bills to pay, brother. What the fuck is this copy? I I don't know, man. BJ wrote it and I think he was high when he did it. How do you know he was high? I just, I read through it and I just have a, I don't know, man, just read it. (laughs) What kind of bills do we have to pay? Well, for starters, you wouldn't believe how much it costs to feed a super intelligent ape who wants to kill Superman? Yes. At first he said he would pay BJ rent, but then some asshole told the ape about squatters', squatters rights? Yep. And he's a supervillain, you know, so he stopped paying rent, and now we all kind of work for him? He's a terrible boss. One time he was eating some guy's face and just left the rest of him in the middle of the floor. I guess it's better than working at Amazon, though. Anyway, the apes got this cool-ass setup in the basement of BJ's mom's house. You should see it. There's this kick-ass pool down there. I have no idea how you get a huge pool in the basement of a small house, but he found a way. Separate lines, he found a way. Now, if only... The ape could remember to take out the garbage in his office before he leaves for the weekend. Everyone else does it. And that includes Stephen Wheat, who works in accounting and shits out of his mouth? <laughs> anyway, that's what's going on here in Harriman, New York, home home of the... Yeah, man, I'm pretty sure he was high, but let's just get back to it. <laughs> now, let's get back to the show. I've heard that about books. I've always heard that said about books that nobody cares about them because you know only three thousand sell a year and they're luxury items and they're not really made for like right. the masses. <laughs> Which is also an infrastructural decision, you right. know. Yes, <laughs> the right. industry makes that choice. I don't know mm-hmm. why they think it's our choice. <laughs> and then speaking of books, I came across this phenomenal book called um, Oh my gosh, I'm going to butcher this name. Uh, it's something like why Superman can't get a job or <laughs> or no, why Superman needs a day job. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And it talks about how um, it came to be that we began taking programs for social welfare as a kind of a thing that we don't pay for. We We don't expect to pay for programs for the social good. But then at the same time, we don't seem to want to get behind taxes going toward programs for social welfare. <laughs> yes. Yep. And I found this um, very sexist, colonialist um, framework behind a lot of the ways that we engage with the arts. And what I mean by that is that something that um, consent culture has created a new paradigm around, dare I say, kind of new is that just because you want it doesn't mean you get it and and that it doesn't put you in the position of underdog for wanting it and not getting it. That's entitlement. And I started to notice that the sort of engagement with the arts was one of like a kind of resentment that some folks just can design a mural, <laughs> you know, and right. yeah. uplift the space and that's a superpower. Artists are treated, we're treated as though we have a kind of superpower 
And so it's this social good that folks don't really want to pay for and don't see us as having a real need. And the other big breakthrough I had was identifying the difference between paradigms in scarcity and abundance. Um, And I want to give a shout out to Amber Phillips, who really got me on board. Abundance, because I had always sort of thought of abundance as kind of like a thing for very wealthy ladies in San Francisco, like (laughs) a white woman thing, form of personal empowerment that I don't know if I'm going to get to. (laughs) And then I started to really see like a lot of the paradigms that we have around what we do and don't put in time for is rooted in our our um a fear-based paradigm of scarcity. Yes. And I think what people don't realize is that in scarcity, scarcity will always ask for less. Always. You know, I mean, if you ever want an example of that, I always tell folks, look at the planet. I mean, when I was a kid in the 80s, they were like one day in California, it's going to be 88 degrees often, real right. often. That's right. And now they're like, mm, we're going to have whales for like two more years. And then it's pretty important that we move to Mars. You know? <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Pack your bags. That's it. So we're about to say made. So you remember the videos about the ozone layer, right? Like, yes. Did you, yeah. Like that was the thing that was going to kill us all. Right. And like, too late. <laughs> It's already gone. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's already killing us. The coral reef is dead and it's coming right. back with its own sunscreen. Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, and it's bringing its friends and it's pissed. And, right. uh, they want to fight the pissed off coral reef. Exactly. And the thing with abundance, I noticed that folks in scarcity get really afraid of abundance thinking. But the best analogy I have for abundance minded thinking is think of like a, a vine. And if you're growing a vine, if you think about whether or not you're going to keep it alive, you're, you're just sort of thinking about the soil in the pot. But if you start thinking about where it's going to go, then all of a sudden, of course, you're thinking about the soil in the pot. And you're also like, maybe I need a lattice. Maybe I want to connect it to my fencing and it's going to twirl around. Like you start to think about other possibilities. So the baseline is its stability. That's a given. And you don't take it for granted. It's an assumed baseline. That's a part of its growth. Um, And I just thought like, what a way to think about the arts. Like if we just assume in it, Instead of thinking, am I going to make it? Am I going to break through? Am I going to be famous? Which is like the equivalent of winning the lottery in the United States, you know? (laughs) Yes. I think, uh, yeah, it's, I always tell people, it's always, you're just buying lottery tickets, man. Uh, That's all you're doing is just buying lottery tickets. Yeah. And like, I, one of my favorite lottery stories was in Canada, this couple that took their lottery winnings and opened up, used it to um, franchise their um, cleaning crew and they became a nationally renowned cleaning service with the stability of this franchise. I'm like, that's what I'm talking about. Infrastructure. It's not just hit or miss. Right. You know, you need a floor. Uh, Have you read Andy Stern's raising, raising the floor? No. Tell me about that. It's the first book um, that's kind of written for politicians by a politician about universal basic income. 
Right. Mm-hmm. There are other books about universal basic income, which are range from like really academic and boring, and I don't recommend. Um, but then there's this one where it's like, okay, clearly he was taught, he, he wanted the people on Capitol Hill to read this and he nice. lays it out in such a great way. But a lot of what you're touching on with the infrastructure goes back to universal basic income. Like if we can establish that floor, then no matter what you choose to pursue, mm-hmm. or if you're in a field that should be paid but isn't at the moment, like caretaking, mm-hmm. you know, now that you've got the floor, you can actually spend the time on your on your craft and your art. And we really need to get there. So, but I'm going to get off my soapbox. This is it's your time. It's a good um, soapbox. Yeah, oh, thanks. Uh, <laughs> but let me ask. So there's what I what I liked about like your your interview answers was there's just a lot of passion and advocacy, and I'd like to know where that comes from. Like what. Where did that? Where was that instilled in your life? Where you're like, I need, I need to stand up for artists. Yeah, I mean, corny answer. My parents, my mom Not corny and dad. At all. <laughs> <laughs> they uh, were sort of stranded here during the Iranian Revolution. Um, they came for education and then the revolution broke out and uh, they totally did not expect to not see their families again for 20 years. And they they were really just here on the savings of a college student in a time where Iran and the United States had a great relationship. Um, and it just turned upside down. And they kept thinking, it'll be over in a year. It'll be over in two years, you know. And they really, like, instilled in me a sense of pride, not just in any given, like, identity, but in myself. And I really struggled in school. And my dad was a PhD student. He was getting two PhDs. (laughs) And in a language that he didn't know, you know. Um, And he was like such a huge advocate to me. Of He used to say, what do you mean you don't understand the lesson? You know I pay your teacher? I pay taxes that pay their salary, (laughs) you know. And I and he would say, like, that's your employee. Did you know you have an employee? You have to tell them how you're feeling. You have to tell them that you're struggling. What do you think after school is for? Your teacher stays in the classroom, right? You need to go to your teacher and say, I don't understand this because you want to understand it. They have to know you want it, you know. And for everything in my life, both my parents were always like, people have to know that you want this you know, go get it. And they were always like, you know, we came here in the middle of a revolution for you to be everything. (laughs) And then when I was um, 19 years old, my brother was 15 and he got a stage four cancer and he's still with us. Thank God. Knock on all the wood. But it progressed as far as it did. Because of a racist ass doctor that actively got in the way of his medical care. And my mom just was relentless. She went to the ER. She made sure he got MRIs. And this doctor yelled at her for it and scolded her, made her wait outside with security while he signed off on documents that he's supposed to sign off on. Um, And she just did not give up. And my brother is alive today because of what she did. And what he said to her was, I know your people. You treat your sons like princes. He's just spoiled. That's why he's crying. He's not in pain. And this is in the Bay Area, the bastion of liberal ideas. 
the place where we care about our kids, you know, what? And that just, that really drilled home for me what we call today intersectionalism. That it just does not matter, you know, the, I came to understand my identity as a racial identity. And I, I really didn't understand what it meant to have a racialized identity until I met W. Kamau Bell. And at the time, it was in San Francisco, uh, I think it was like 2008, and he was performing a show, uh, his one-man show called uh, The W. Kamau Bell Curve, Ending Racism in About an Hour. (laughs) It was a great hour. (laughs) I learned so much (laughs) that I was really cut off from growing up in the affluent Republican suburb of Danville, California, I didn't really have like a sense of my racialized identity. You know, everything, every conversation about racism that I grew up with there was like, that's the R word. That's mean to say to white people. And racism really only happens in the South. And that was a long time ago. (laughs) I'm nodding because I've heard, uh, yeah, I've heard that exact. (laughs) Yeah. And it like, he, he, brought it home he he brought it into pop culture and he just like it was like 40 at that time 20 years of um gaslighting and i just was like i knew it (laughs) and i think i know that for like a lot of or for some immigrant communities you know that really stand behind that model minority mythology of like we just got to contribute and show we're the best of the best you know um, I think sometimes the story they tell um, that is so damaging and so racist is that, you know, if we're just good enough, that we're not going to be a victim to it, you know, or that we can rise above it somehow or something like that. And and that it's better to not raise kids with a sense of their racial identity because we don't want them to know that. We want them to think that they're just like everybody else. But that was so opposite of true for me like I just felt so gaslit all the time and I didn't I didn't have any kind of language to point to the racism and microaggressions that I was experiencing as a kid and say like this is what's happening to me you know um yeah such a gift to meet Kamau to to have the roots that I had and my folks yeah it's a good it's a good place for me to ask what what advice would you give to aspiring creatives they're watching this just based on our discussion and based on your experience. Okay. Get a dog. Huge. This is huge, folks. Cat, goldfish, plant, sure. Get a dog. <laughs> it keeps you moving. It, it, it keeps yeah. you moving. What a, it's just been such a, especially in pandemic, such a reminder of my body. You know, I'm like behind my computer all day and my dog's looking at me like, Right. Yeah. Are you, are you a dog owner? When I'm out in LA, uh, I babysit a couple of dogs and they, otherwise, if not for them, I would be exactly behind my desk the entire day. But yeah. I know every three hours they got to go out. They got to go for a walk at about a half hour of walk. So that's my exercise. So when I saw that, I was like, yes, you got to get a dog. <laughs> like that's, I mean, yeah. I have, yes, I, the dog will get you exercise. And I think that's so important. Yeah. Just getting outside. And then also, Training a dog was so informative for me. Like when you're trying to train a dog, you got to give a treat 
and say their name every second for a minute before they are like, oh, that's my name and I like it. <laughs> that's right. And you got to teach them to come when called by being really nice to them and giving them boiled chicken and saying good job a ton. And I'm like, man, I complain all the time about not writing enough. And I'm like, get to your desk, Zara. Why are you so lazy? Come on. <laughs> I mean, like for all of us, maybe that's we just have to like for me, maybe I just need to offer myself a piece of chicken if I finish this page. Yeah, there you go. Just boil no, like, some boiled just, chicken just while you're typing. Exactly. Like, it's, it's incentive. I had a friend tell me that she keeps Halloween candy at her desk. Oh, smart. And gives herself a piece every hour just to like, and I'm like, that's so nice. <laughs> yeah. You got to take care of yourself. You got to love yourself. That's a great way to do it. I think I will probably steal that idea. The second is get a <laughs> hobby, get a hobby and one that you're not good at. It's got to be one you're not good at. Because I think as artists, we need reminders that we suck sometimes and it's okay. Yes. <laughs> and it's not the beginning yes. and end of it, you know? And it, it just like keeps my brain pliable, keeps my muscles pliable. And it's just like something else I can be proud of. There's always a time where like, I like right now where I'm really despondent. I'm real worried about, you know, getting my comedy special finished in its post-production and finding enough funding to finish it out. And then meantime, I'm really good at crocheting right now. It's going well. That's awesome. Well, you're good at both. I have like, yeah. I have complete faith that that you will you will get it. Like, how can we help? Is there is there a way that people watching this could help? Yes, yes, you can. Uh, you can Venmo support. That's always just a direct way that you can support me at Zara Comedy on Venmo or PayPal. Um, you can also just send me nice messages on Twitter and Instagram. That really helps. Like I have folks every now and then from different podcasts I've guested on who just like randomly will be like, we can't wait to see it, Zara. And it's like, okay, thank you. <laughs> it's very lovely working yes. on a stand-up special. I mean, it's just you. There's nobody else. Like you don't have an ensemble or a troupe. Right. So it just, it gets lonely. So uh, those are two ways that are really lovely. And you can join my newsletter at ZaraComedy.com. I got time for one more question. Awesome. Uh, who is who is someone that you would like to give a shout out to or some attention to that maybe doesn't get the attention you think they should? Okay, this person might be getting the attention they need and probably more than me, but that's good. There should just still be more. Uh, I want to shout out Pallavi Gunalin, who is just a brilliant comedian, so funny, so smart. She's also a biomedical engineer during COVID. Um, she writes for Love It or Leave It, and she's also part of the facial recognition comedy troupe, which you all should know about anyways, with Fiza Dasani and Zahra Ali. They're phenomenal. Their work is phenomenal. They're hilarious. Um, they formed a troupe together uh, with a tagline, we are not the same person. And we even had like an all Zara showcase. They're amazing. <laughs> They're amazing. That sounds like a fantastic thing to see. Um, so I'm going to make it a point <laughs> to <laughs> do that because that sounds fantastic. Um, I we I only got through maybe three questions. Um, so I would love <laughs> it if you if you came back um, when when you have something that you're ready to promote. Um, please hit me up. I would I would love to have you back on. Um, and anything. Oh, for so for the project that we had started talking about, I know you were looking for 
an illustrator um, yes. and a grant writer. Do you want to just tell us real quick? Yes, folks. For the um, artist infrastructural report that I'm working on, I really need an illustrator, um, someone who can kind of imagine um, the designs with me. And if you're that person, uh, let's get a grant and do this. Where are you? Let's play. And you're looking for you're looking for grant writers as well, right? Like for people that might be able to help. Yeah, uh, the, I always feel so like, hey, if you're a grant writer out there and you want to help me build out this project, that would be amazing. So you just gotta ask sometimes, you know. Like mm-hmm. I, that's the, the I found that that's been a really valuable trick because I've always been like that, and you know, like feeling like I don't want to bother people, right? Like everyone's right, wanna, and then. You know, asking them to do your thing feels like it's just a lot. But I, I found, uh, I mean, I just asked you for the show. I was just like, hey, um, <laughs> would you do this thing? It's not even out yet as a podcast, but it's coming. Uh, I've, I'm Yay. taping these. Um, so, uh, yeah. So if anyone's watching and you are a grant writer or an illustrator, please get in touch with Zara. I think it's a, tre- it's a tremendous project. Um, yeah, that's, that's all the questions I have. You know, I'm pretty I'm pretty upset that the Mets are good now. Why is that? Well, because now we can't experience things like when they had a 97-year-old pitching coach. You mean Phil Regan? Yeah, th- that guy who played for the Brooklyn Dodgers. That team hasn't even existed for 65 years. Like, do you understand how close we all came to having this super old guy coaching the Mets? Do you understand the kind of comedy gold that could have been, like right now when we need laughter the most? He probably wouldn't even remember who was on the team. Regan would be in the dugout chewing tobacco and saying shit like, send in Willie Mays. And then one of the guys on the bench would be like, coach, Willie Mays is dead. And then Regan would be like, the hell he is, get him in there. I don't think Willie Mays is dead. He's not. And I hope Willie Mays lives forever, I really do. But Willie Mays also hasn't played for the Mets since 1973. Anyway, I just want people to understand the potential joy that we're all deprived of now that the Mets are good. Hmm. Well, that's all for this week. If you enjoyed this episode of Weiwo.tv, you know what you need to do. Rate us and leave us a review wherever your favorite podcast can be found. That'll help people find this show and hopefully enjoy it as much as you did. You did enjoy the show, right? We're going to assume you did, because you made it to the outro. Most people don't. Be sure to follow BJ on Instagram at BJ Mendelson and tell him who you'd like to see interviewed next. You can also text your suggestions to BJ at 646-331-8341. But don't call that number. BJ says he's only going to answer if you're Melissa O'Neill from ABC's The Rookie. Also, only if you're going to ask him out on a date. We'll see you next time. Right?